0: from cake making to wine tasting for more information visit culinarycenter.com
1: this is chef emily peterson host of
0: sharp and hot you're listening to heritage radio network broadcasting live from bushwick brooklyn if you like this program visit Network.org for thousands more
1: <laughs> good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, uh, and my guest today is one of my very favorite guests, uh, Tom Philpot. Tom is a journalist. He served as a columnist, food editor, and senior food writer for the online environmental site Grist. He's a co-founder of Maverick Farms, a center for sustainable food education in Valley Cruises, North Carolina. And before moving to the farm in 2004, Phil Pot worked as a journalist, financial journalist in Mexico City and in New York. And most recently, he writes daily dispatch. Uh, most recently, writing daily dispatches on the stock market as equity research editor. I always forget about that part of you, Tom. It's it's. I, I want to work on that part with you, like more about food economics. Um, and uh, now he writes for Mother Jones, and um, I read his work uh, regularly with inc- sort of increasingly religious fervor. I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, welcome back to the show, Tom. Always good to have you on.
2: Glad to be here, Katie. Thanks for having me.
1: Oh, sure. So, how? Uh, so um, okay, so let's start with food chains, because that's been uh, in the news, or at least sort of in our news, uh, quite a bit, and um, was wondering what you thought of it. I saw it yesterday. Uh, let's hear the Tom Philpott review.
2: Yeah, I saw it about a week, week and a half ago, and uh-huh. I thought it did a really, really good job of telling a um a complicated and i think important story yeah um in a in a pretty subtle way
1: uh yeah I mean, I, yeah, I, you know, it's definitely a very important story and uh, a story that we certainly don't hear anywhere near enough. And for people who haven't read about food chains and don't know what it is, um, this is a new documentary that um, focuses primarily on the Immokalee uh, farm workers. I think it's called the Coalition of Immokalee Workers. That's right. Um, and that's the group that was uh, profiled in uh, Barry Estherbrook's excellent book, Tomato Land, a few years ago. And they've sort of become uh, the poster children for, um, you know, uh, farm workers, right? Like much the way that uh, Cesar Chavez, uh, you know, created the United Farm Workers Union uh, way back in the 70s, I guess. Um, That's right. The Immokalee farm workers have uh, are, you know, creating new models for how farm workers should be compensated, what kinds of contracts they should get uh, and what kinds of conditions that they can find acceptable as workers um, and on farms. And so. um, So, yeah, I thought that it. um, Yeah, I I, I found it a little flabby somehow. I don't know if that's the right uh, word, but but you know, like I, I felt like it could have been a little more pointed, um, a little tougher, actually. Um, and you know, they uh, they focused on this one particular food fight that they're having with Publix, the one of the biggest grocery chain markets in the country, um, because yeah. Publix has refused famously over really over the course of quite a few years at this point, because they stopped filming, yeah. it, they said in 2012, right. Um, and they they've been asking for literally one more penny per pound of tomatoes for tomatoes, right? right? So, I yeah. mean, didn't you think that they could have been a little more, um, you know, mean about <laughs> a little just a little
2: meaner? <laughs> I think they were, I think they you know it's it, it's kind of a complicated story, and they they had to, and they also didn't want to make it just about the coalition and mockery workers. So I think they were right. trying to make it about a little
1: more farm.
2: Farm workers in general, yeah. and so they, they they kind of got off the path. But but it's a fascinating story. So what, what you had was um, up up into the late 90s and into the 2000s, you had this situation in Immokalee, Florida, where you had workers making the same wage nominally, like in dollar terms, that they were making 30 years ago, right. meaning that inflation had basically given them like a 30% pay cut. Right. Um, and so yeah, by the official wage, people were living in Florida in really, really bad poverty. Um, and then at the margin, because the situation was just sort of so lawless, you basically had slavery happening. You yeah. had um, many cases and even the George Bush administration Justice Department cracked down upon because they were just so shocking, hmm. um, you know, guys held in captivity, chained in, to, to trucks yeah. for, for months and months, and able to leave. And so uh, the CIW, the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, they started to um, to organize, um, you know, going back into the 80s. And um, for years and years, they would have these these um, sort of protests and wildcat strikes. Cause, you know, um, unions aren't, aren't it's not legal for farm workers to have unions in Florida. so They'd have these wildcat mm. strikes and really get nowhere. Um you know maybe make some tiny concessions but you know basically just completely disempowered. Yeah. Then they got this idea that okay, we're not getting anywhere with the growers and what the growers are saying is that we're squeezed by these companies that buy our products. Mm-hmm. And what the, what these companies will do is they'll tell us that hey, if um if um you want to charge us more for your tomatoes, we'll just go to Mexico and get our our winter tomatoes from Mexico. So the companies had all the leverage. And so what the CIW did that was so important was they took the fight to those companies. And they, you know, basically – Started with fast food chains. And these companies are very image conscious. When you take your kid to McDonald's, you see the happy clown, you <laughs> know the happy meal, right. and you don't want to hear about slavery and misery. And so they went right. one by one over many many years and got these companies to to uh, commit to concede to, to, a, to a penny a pound. And so a penny a pound um, for a farm worker. And at the end of the day it represents about a forty percent raise and it um it takes a wage from sub poverty to uh, over the poverty level and in addition to the penny a pound um they also get these companies to sign um uh, codes of conduct that um include things about sexual harassment, sexual abuse which is pretty common in the mm-hmm. fields um you know obviously slavery um Working out, working hours, working conditions, use of use of pesticides, and so they, they've just been going one by one, and um, you know it's a really remarkable story because you know these are these are some of the poorest farm, you know, some of the poorest workers in the United States, some of the yes. least well paid workers in the United States. I think they quoted fourteen
1: thousand these- dollars a year, like at the current, yeah. you know, like that's what they're making. I mean, nobody can live on that.
2: Yeah, that brought these companies to their knees, and I, I actually went down there in 2000. I think it was 2009 when many of these fast food companies had already broken, but um, there were still there were still some of them holding out, and there are today. I think, I think it's, Wendy's is it's still windy. holding out. Yep. Yeah, um, and, and maybe uh, Taco, the Bell. Housing, Ta- Taco Bell. housing Taco Bell signs. Oh, they did uh, a okay, while finally. back. Okay,
1: okay.
2: Yeah, but um, but the conditions that I saw in, in Immokalee were jaw, jaw-dropping. Mm. Um, nothing, like nothing I've ever seen mm. in the United States. Uh, just, you know, the, the housing... Um, the, the other side of the story um, is that the housing uh, is controlled by a few landowners in, in Immokalee, Florida, and right. they charge exorbitant uh, Manhattan-style rent. No way. Um, especially in the season. And So what the, sure. what the guys have to do to survive is you put a lot of guys in one house. And so I saw places that were literally, you know, a tiny kitchen and then like a kind of a barracks with bed, mm-hmm. bed, bed, no room to walk around, just mattresses in the ground. Yeah. Um, just, just inc- and, and houses falling apart and um, just, just crazy, crazy stuff. And so what, what they've been able to do with, uh, you know, very little resources is, is incredible. And, and the film, I think, does a pretty good job of telling that story.
1: Yes, it does. It does uh, It does bring in those points. I, but you mentioned pesticides, and actually that would have been something that I would have focused on more because their exposure <clears throat> to chemicals in the fields must be just heinous. I mean, I can't imagine that it isn't. Yeah. And they, they, they sort of maybe mentioned it in passing, but really it was the slavery, you know, the more sort of, I guess, um, You know, eye opener, like shocking jaw dropping things like the slavery and the the uh, the lack of housing. Actually, they showed a lot of um, sort of tent cities, you know, and people living literally down on the riverbank on a, in a sleeping bag, and you know during the season, yeah. as you point out. And um, I would have liked to have heard more, actually, about the gouging of prices. That was kind of glossed over, but you know, you only have so much time with this with these movies. So, um, but what so, right. so I mean, just to to um, connect the dots here between. Um, between the Immokalee workers, uh, be- many of whom, at one time at least, were undocumented and probably often are, and then um, Ted Genoways, who actually was at my screening yesterday, um, he, you know, in his excellent book, The Chain, about uh, the Hormel Company and how they treat their workers. Also, again, un- many undocumented workers are workers who have a hard time um, you know, working with unions. Unions have largely lost their teeth there uh, in the meatpackers industry, at least up where he is. Um, yeah. Like there's a whole – I mean I realize that there is like this – the whole sort of pressure for immigration reform is all about these kinds of situations, you know. And, um, and yes. I wanted to just kind of explore that avenue with you a little bit because I'm sure you've thought yeah, a lot about you it. Yeah, you
2: know, to me it's a little bit of a tragedy because this latest um, immigration reform from Obama is, mm. you know, important and overdue. But it doesn't um, – It doesn't really it address... only affects people. It only affects people who have kids in the United States, and so a lot of these workers and
1: people who've been here in, for five years.
2: Is it also people who've been here for five yeah. years? Anyone who's been here confused. for
1: five years or who has child has had children here, basically. Okay, so and everybody else a is shit of out of luck, basically.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, that is sort of the least. You know, there's a couple of different sides to this equation. And one of them, one of them came out in um, in, in food chains, and that is that. Um, Our neighbor to the south, Mexico, um, has been running policies for, since probably the early 80s, -hmm. that sort of explicit policies of pushing people off the countryside. And this is sort of, this is indigenous, you know, a very large population of indigenous farmers that that exist in Mexico, um, who basically um, gave the created modern Mexico with the Mexican Revolution in the early part of the 20th century and got really strong pro agrarian laws into the Mexican Constitution. Well, the government, since the 80s, has been running these sort of free trade policies, signing stuff like NAFTA,
1: um,
2: that have made life incredibly difficult in the countryside for their farmers. And, you know, the U.S. is not... um, you know, the U.S. is sort of part of that, it's uh, encouraged that, um, you know, that the big fulcrum was the 1982 debt crisis, uh-huh. um, That is a whole topic on itself, but mm-hmm. basically after the 1982 debt crisis, um, Mexico made this policy shift. And so you've, you've got this uh, incredible pressure in the Mexican countryside that NAFTA is part of um, that makes it hard hard to live there and so you've got you've had this mass exodus from the countryside yeah. and the, the interesting thing is that, that the mexican compo as it's called is uh is still going there are still um a huge portion of the population still live there but um but because of low corn prices and all this you know all this other stuff um it's basically subsidized by these workers working in places like in florida or up wow. in nebraska and meatpacking plants yeah um uh, saving a, a part of their tiny wages and sending it back yeah. to Mexico, and so so part of it is we as Americans are sort of implicated in this because our policies have gone hand in hand with with Mexico's policies to sort of clean out the countryside. Um,
1: well, NAFTA. And which, then, you know the other. Sorry, yeah, and then
2: the other the other part of the equation being that. You know, at this point in our country, these are the people who feed us. Yeah, and these are the people that that, that process our meat, that pick our vegetables, that you know work in the back of restaurants. Um, not the not not of the the part that you see in the public. Sort of the. The, you know the chefs, are very um, right, you know, right. out, out front of the restaurant, <laughs> but in the in the back, in the, in the dishwasher kitchen, when she are never exposed in yeah. places like that. Yeah. Um, that these are the people that feed us, and it is ridiculous and insane to have this policy of hounding them, um, you know, declaring them illegal. Um, Deporting them, and you yeah. know, the other thing is that they they pay payroll taxes, they pay sales taxes, and so they're, they're paying into into this into this economy, mm-hmm. and are um, and, and spend you know basically every because poor people spend almost all of their incomes. Yeah. Whenever they whenever they don't send back to Mexico, they're they're, they're spending, spending here, right. Um, and so they're they're part of the economy, they feed us, and it is, you know, to me, it's just a job. I think it's something that we're going to look back on in history and say, what was all that? What was this idea of get out of our country, let's militarize the border, let's, you know, let's deport people yeah. en masse. It, it's going to look really bad, I think.
1: Well, I mean, it looks so bad right now with, you know, those 50,000 children sitting at the border right this minute. I mean, I don't think that situation is anywhere close to a resolution. Um, and, you know, there those children languish, and it's gone out of the news cycle, and, you know, I don't know what's happened to them. Do you? You know, I mean, it's like nobody's thinking um, about that anymore.
2: I mean, it's in this whole complicated process, and, um, and you know, Mexico is one thing, but the countries south of Mexico, where, oh, yeah. where a lot of those kids come from, are even more just completely wrecked. Um, and, yeah, in a state of civil
1: war or terrible turmoil, military juntas, yeah. people being hunted down, shot. I mean, even Mexico is pretty damn scary nowadays. I'm really glad I don't live there, although I love to visit them. Um, yeah, <laughs>
2: it's a great place.
1: Uh, it's a great place, and I, I've always really liked, you know, the population there. Not that I've visited that often, but. Anyway, um, let's go back to this idea of um, well, let's let's talk for a second about since we just talked about NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, and the impact that had on farmers both north and south of the Mexican border, as well as up in Canada, um, and then um, and tie it into one of your most recent articles, which was about the Trans-Pacific Partnership uh, that is going to um, open up new markets for our uh slaughterhouses our packing houses our meat providers um and yeah. I, I i wanted to like get just kind of tie that into this whole story as well because i think that's a very interesting development and then maybe we can talk a little bit about smithfield and selling into the chinese yeah. and you know let's 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 go into a tpp for a second and, and talk about what that means because yeah. i don't think people are really paying attention to
2: that no they they certainly are not um, so i think that what sort of the meat industry goes is it's pretty simple um you know, here, here in the United States, um, in food markets in general, food markets grow about with population now, mm-hmm. because you know people aren't, for the most part, people have enough to eat. Um, people have food is within people's budgets for the most part. There are you know major exceptions, but but basically, um, people you know people aren't. There's not this pin up demand to buy more food. That, that's just mm-hmm. in general. Uh, and so the, the overall food market grows just with population. And then you look at meat, and you've got a situation where after decades of growing, in the past four or five years, per capita meat consumption is leveled off and is even dropping. Mm-hmm. Um, so people, are, people are, are tending to be eating a little bit less meat. Um, and most of these companies are publicly traded, and so they've got to show – you know, quarterly as much as as much as possible quarterly um, revenue and profit gains. Right, but their domestic market is shrinking, and so you know there's this scramble to to, to sell value added products. Like instead of selling a pork chop, you sell some kind of like um, you know. Uh, pre-cooked, pre-seasoned pork one you can just pop in the the microwave. Uh, And they've they've done all that as much as possible. There's been this big push to value added. Um, And so now they're in this sort of crisis where their domestic market is not growing. Um, And so what do you do? And the big answer has been, well, let's export. Let's export as much as possible. Uh, Let's get this export engine going. And I think that is a big play now for your sort of Tysons and Cargills and absolutely and Smithfields. And, uh, and, you know, there's one of the things that I bring up about it is that, you know, Americans are eating less meat for a lot of different reasons. And I don't think we fully know what's going on with that. But I, I think one of the reasons is that people are like, are, you know, watching stuff like Food Inc., reading, you know, Pollen and Schlosser,
1: uh-huh.
2: listening to your show, um, <laughs> yes. things like that, and are concerned about the ecological impacts of these concentrated factory style. Right. Um, as facilities. well as the
1: animal welfare impact, right? I mean, people as well as animal welfare people impacts, really worry then, about
2: that. Yeah, p- people are like, you know, this is happening here in 2014. I don't like it. Right. Um, these are you know, sort of the Concentration of manure and the whole problem of what to do with it, the you know the horrible animal welfare issues, and they're hoping that by consuming less, maybe they put downward pressure on this stuff maybe um, maybe it happens less, maybe the industry right. shrinks but um, when there's a big export market going, um, that means that our consumer choices won't really affect that that we could see if the, if the business model works um and it has i mean exports have been have been big but they haven't sort of pulled the meat industry out of this slump that it's in yet maybe they will but if they do work we could see you know instead of fewer hog facilities in places like Iowa and North Carolina we could see more hog facilities yes instead absolutely. of fewer chicken you know gigantic chicken farms and that um, Delmarva area of you know the Eastern Seaboard, we could see more of those um, in that Chesapeake Bay area, mm. and so it's sort of um, the, this export model is sort of taking, it's uh, removing American consumers' um, ability to ramp this stuff down um, by by eating less. That's just one of the problems.
1: Well, I I, want to insert a quote here because last week I had George Faison on, you know, from DeBaga and Spittler. And George really knows the meat industry inside and out. And I was saying, you know, like, well, don't you think that all these people freaking out over animal welfare and feedlots and blah, 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 you know, do you think that's having an impact on the big players like Smithfield or or Cargill? And he's like, absolutely not. They don't give a shit. You know right. like they they're going to have their consumer and like and if they if we're not buying enough here they're just going to you know just export more and more of it elsewhere and I, you know it was just yeah. like such a it was such a splash of cold water because here I am thinking you know you see you do see within the meat industry some incremental changes um but I, you yeah. know largely greenwashing but still you feel like oh well maybe they are starting to <laughs> see the light but no I, george is completely right <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know what, Tom? Yes, we have to take alive. a real quick break. I hate to do this to you because yes. this is so much fun, but uh, I do have to do the sponsor drop. So, Jack, let's cue that up, make it happen real quick, and then we'll do f- like five more minutes, and uh, and then we'll say goodbye reluctantly.
0: The International Culinary Center is a proud sponsor of the HeritageRadioNetwork.org,
1: dot The ICC, with locations in New York and California provide cutting-edge education to future chefs, restaurateurs, and wine professionals. We're proud to claim Dan Barber, Bobby Flay, and David Chang among our honored alumni. This is Dorothy Can Hamilton from Chef's Story. Check out our ICC website at internationalculinarycenter.com and we're back. This is Katie Kiefer with What Doesn't Kill You? Food Industry Insights and I'm talking today with Tom Philpott um, and we are discussing food chains, immigration, and now uh, the increasing uh, desire for uh, exporting our meat products uh, to points beyond our borders and what impact that's going to have. So, um, you know, let's just like the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we didn't actually tell people really what that's going to mean, so let's, let's drill down on that for just a couple seconds before we Um, Wrap this up.
2: Yeah, so it's this massive trade deal that's being negotiated um, with uh, several countries in this side of the hemisphere. I mean, uh, in this side of the world, like a few Latin American countries, including Mexico, um, Uh but Chile, Chile and a few other countries. And then a bunch of Eastern countries, Japan, a bunch of the Southeast Asian tigers. China's not part of it. Um, And the big, and I wrote about this a couple weeks ago, the big holdup in this deal is that. Japan and a few of the other uh, Asian countries are holding on to some domestic laws, or yeah, some domestic trade laws with respect to meat that has really got the U.S. industry up in arms. And it's stuff like um, Japan, you know, it wants to have a domestic pork and beef industry, and it does not want a flood of cheap U.S. Um,
0: products,
2: yeah. Imports coming in and, and knocking it out. And so it's it's got some things in place. It's got some quotas and tariffs in place. Mm-hmm. And then some of the other countries have uh, things that you, the U.S. industry hates, like, um, you know, we don't want um, traces of this or that.
1: Yeah, like ractopamine or, you know, any of the beta agonists. And things like
2: that. Yeah. And so the U.S. negotiators are pushing real hard um, on. These countries to uh, to agree to this sort of complete free trade <laughs> pact on need. yeah, and um, and what maybe you know this this has been in the works for a while. There's been all these problems, but what happened is that with the election of a few weeks ago, yeah, the Republican Congress is determined to push this through, and Obama, um, I'm pretty disappointed about this. Obama is also um wanting to make this a big part of his legacy that he got this um that he got this through. Right. And so um I'm not, you know, I think it's pretty hard to say what the prospects are because you know it is a uh, there's a lot of moving parts in a deal
1: Definitely. this
2: big. But it it seems like with the election um and with the the situation in Washington it seems like this PPP is on a fast track.
1: Yes, probably. Just so Obama looks like he's, you know, can actually cut a deal with Congress for once, right? That,
2: that's that's one thing, yeah.
1: I mean for sure. you know, it's 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 a little bit of political posturing. I think if you know if, if he were uh, you know really wanted to stick to his guns like he's at the moment seems to be doing with the Keystone Pipeline, uh, this would not be happening, or at least not the version that they are promoting. Um, you mentioned well, the very high tariffs, I thought that
2: was interesting. He has. He's been on this for a while, and I think he. I think he really believes. I think he wants to be like, like Clinton had the legacy of NAFTA. I think he wants. We saw how well that like worked this out. On his legacy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> But I mean, like, you'd think that history would say to him, uh, you know, maybe this isn't like quite the right kind of treaty that we want to negotiate. I don't know. I mean, this is exactly. something I don't understand quite well enough to really make, have an opinion on except for the fact that, you know, as you just pointed out, a flood of cheap meat into other countries that have existing industries um, mm-hmm. or even that adopt our models. I mean, I'm thinking about my trip to Vietnam recently where, you know, every family has one, two, three, four, you know, a litter of hogs, whatever um and that's that's their pork supply and those animals are living outside right. and they're eating regular food and they're you know it's a much happier um situation and how they manage the sort of wholesale distribution I don't quite understand. But it's not something I would like to see go away. And if, if somebody like right. Smithfield, now owned by Xuang Hui, uh, you know, ends up uh, starting to grow their pigs in Vietnam or elsewhere, then, you know, that whole uh, sort of um, agrarian lifestyle will definitely disappear in those countries. So, um,
2: Which is happening in China, independently yeah. of this TPP. But um, let me just say one thing about the Smithfield bill that I think is yes. really interesting. Okay. Um do. That uh, one thing is that we mentioned r- ragtopamine, um, China will not accept um, right. pork from pigs that are fed that. Mm-hmm. And this 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 is a, um, a a drug that the U.S. industry loves. Loves and has it. Been and has basically said it, it can't be everything. phased out. Yeah, it can't be phased out. And it'll be too expensive. Mm. But um, because the obsession with the China market. Uh, which is the jewel of of the export market, so, yeah, sure. obviously. Absolutely. Um, uh, Smith's deal, uh, weeks before this deal was announced announced that it was going to phase out rectopamine at half its facilities. That's right. Um, with the, with the China market in mind, and I think it's just really interesting that China, which we you know Americans see as this sort of you know hot you know festering hotbed of food <laughs> safety scandals, absolutely, yeah, is actually has a standard that is higher than ours, higher than the FDA's, higher than the USDA, yeah. and is creating change in our industry. And I think we're, we're, we're going to be in a position very soon where China is getting the ractopamine free meat that's grown in the United States.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and, and we Americans getting... are getting the rectopamine stuff, which yeah. is just so interesting. And I think um, you know, that uh, U.S. beef has not made head, headway in China. Um, and this this goes back to mad cow scares in the past and things yes. like that. But um, the use of the similar <laughs> retropamine-like substances in beef, yes. which has been very controversial, isn't helping any. And I wonder if to open the China market to U.S. beef, you might see a similar thing from companies like Tyson and, and whatnot that would love sure. to to have access to that market.
1: Um, yeah, we'll see. I don't know. They, they seem to really love that drug. Uh, even yeah. though quite a few papers have come out um, saying, you know, that this is really not a great drug from various points of view. Um, yeah. It You know, aside from the animal welfare issues, apparently it lingers, yeah. it lingers in the flesh. Uh, it's then, uh, you know, excreted uh, and then spread into our water system and into our fields and then taken up by plants and fish and birds. And, you know, it's like all the Great. other drugs, you know, it's just like, wait a minute. And this, by the way, is not a I mean, this is a beta agonist. It's what we use. Those of us who are asthmatics to, you know, to shrink our alveoli, you know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not yeah, an it, inconsequential it, it, drug. It's uh, you know, it causes it stresses, osteoporosis it, and cataracts. And
2: <laughs> yeah, and it stresses to, it stresses animals out. I mean, oh, very much so. Not, makes their
1: uh, Makes their hoofs uh, the the nails of the hoof fall off. Uh, it stresses them out. Yeah, makes awful. them very irritable. It um, makes it very hard for them to walk. Uh, to stand and so on. But we'll, we could do another whole program about that. Unfortunately, now we have to wrap this up a little bit uh, short. But sweet nonetheless, Tom, thank you so much for joining me today uh, to talk about food thanks chains. I, I wish those people the biggest success. I'm going to try to get some of the uh, players from the movie onto my show in the next few weeks. Um, and uh, well, I guess uh, have a great Thanksgiving, everybody, including you, Tom. And thanks to my sponsors. Thanks a lot. You betcha. Thank you to the uh, ICC for their sponsorship and to Jack, as always. So long.